All right, it's getting crowded up here. Please open your scriptures with me to Rome, uh, Romans. Here I go again. To Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read the uh, entire chapter. Listen to God's word. Now the point in which what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he instructed He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declared the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother saying, I know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, prepare our hearts for your word to invade them and change them. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we took a breather, if you'll remember. We called it where we looked at the first six verses of this and and we really looked at what the author's conclusion is to the, to the chapters leading up to this. The author's making sure that before moving on, his readers understand that Jesus' priesthood is much more excellent than the old priesthood. And we looked at how his, his work is much more excellent. He is seated at the right hand. He's seated. The work is finished. It's completed. It's done. Despite how much we want to add to it, it's done. We also looked at the location of Jesus, our high priest, is superior. Not in the the shadow temple that was built down here, but the real temple in heaven. Then the author wants to go on. 
And he says, and you can look in verse 6, that's the kind of the transitional sentence. He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. That's what we just talked about. But then he goes on and says, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. We can just kind of read over that. But to the, to the Hebrew, to the Jew that this was being read to in the first century, that would have been a showstopper. Okay, uh, you, you, you've kind of convinced me about the priesthood, but the covenant? This is our identity. Are you telling me the covenant that I, that I am, was born into? This would have absolutely bowled them over. And the first question they would ask is, why? Wouldn't you ask that? Why do we need a new covenant? And, and the writer anticipates that, and so does the Holy Spirit. And he gives them two reasons here why the new covenant, a new covenant is needed. And the first one is that the new covenant is needed because it was planned to be impermanent. It was planned. You see that right here in verses 8 and 9 in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is 600 years before Christ. And, and through the prophet Jeremiah, he is telling his, his people, there's a new covenant coming. There's... there's Something else coming. In other words, the Mosaic Covenant was not going to last forever. In verse 13, you can see that. That's the conclusion that the author comes to. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That's the conclusion, right? That's what Jeremiah is saying. The author is just saying what's implied in Jeremiah 31. He goes on to say, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is already vanishing away. I, that leads many people to think that this was written before 70 A.D. Be, the, maybe the temple sacrifices were still going on. But 70 A.D., when, when Titus came and laid siege to Jerusalem and, and raised Jerusalem, for those of you who don't know what that means, it's not lift up, it's tear down, leveled Jerusalem, leveled the temple, no more sacrifices. No more Old Covenant. There's a tendency to think that when God says something, it has to be permanent. Right? It's kind of ingrained in us. Our salvation, permanent. When Christ saves you, he doesn't let go of you. It's permanent. There are certain covenants that he makes that are, that are permanent. Like the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12 and 15, 17, 22, when he puts that covenant together. That, that covenant is permanent. The, the covenant that he makes that he's going to grow a people for himself. That's, we're fruit of that right here. But there are also covenants that God makes that are for certain purposes and for, for certain times. And that was the Mosaic covenant. It was for a certain purpose for a certain time. We don't have time to talk about all the implications of this, but Paul, in his book to the, to the letter to the Romans, 
talks about this specifically in chapter 7, and that might be a good chapter for you guys to, to read later on today or this week in your quiet time, chapter 7 in Romans. And there Paul says one of the central purposes of the Mosaic Covenant is this. He writes, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known. The Mosaic Law was put in place to show us our sin, to show us our weakness, to show us our inability to live up to God's standard, to establish our guilt before God and our need for a Savior. Don't you see that the Mosaic Covenant was there to drive his people to God? God wanted us to see how them to see how dire their situation really was. He wanted his people to see their need for him, their need for a savior. Because like you you and me, they they simply could not live up to that standard. Which brings us to the second reason why the new covenant was needed, why Jeremiah prophesied about it. Because the old covenant was in it did not have the power to save. The, the Mosaic Covenant did not have the power to save. It was impotent. Look with me at verse 7. It says it right here. For if that first covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, if you're reading your Bible thoughtfully, you should, that, that, you should pause after that. Because the implication there is what? God made a mistake? The, the covenant is, is faulty? What's going on there? As a believer, when you read things like that, and, and those things come to mind, you need to stop. Because that's an important question to answer. The implication is that God made a mistake here. The, the covenant's faulty? God created the Mosaic Covenant, right? You read all about that in Exodus. It says in Exodus that, that the covenant, which the Ten Commandments are representative of, were, were written with God's own finger, right? But now God's word is telling us it was faulty. So God created something that was faulty? That puts a lot of things on the table, doesn't it? It would be easy to read this and start questioning if God is indeed God. If God is perfect and knows everything and is holy and everything he does is right, how could he make a mistake? If God makes mistakes like this, can't he make other mistakes? Last week I told you that Carrie and I haven't bought any furniture except just recently. Well, I didn't tell all the truth. We have bought furniture in the past, but the furniture we've bought came in very thin boxes. You know the kind I mean? You go to Walmart and you bring it home and it's in a box and it's all this compression board that you have to put together. Okay, so I put a lot of those together in the 20 years we've been married. I can't tell you how many times I've made a mistake putting that simple stuff together. I don't know if you can relate to this, but, but you know, I, I, I kind of know, know it now. You know, you put it in, you, you, you turn it, and you tighten it up. And, and I think I know how to build this stuff, but 
every, almost, no, every time I can say, I can honestly say, every time I make a mistake. I either put one of the boards in backwards, you know, that it's not finished, and so you see the particle board, and so I, oh, I have to disassemble the whole thing to turn that thing around, or I put something upside down, or the kick plate is on the backside, and I'm like, I make a mistake every time. That's why I give this job to my competent son, Jack, now. He never makes a mistake. He just puts it together. I bring it home, he said, and we just did this a couple weeks ago. I brought something home. I said, Jack, can you put that together? He put it together, no problem. I always make a mistake. I always have to disassemble and reassemble. Scripture is exceedingly clear. God's not like me. He never makes a mistake. He never puts something into effect that is not perfect. Psalm 18.30 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. This is God's word. In Deuteronomy 32, it writes, He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. And you know as well as I do, when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Be perfect then. How? As your father is perfect, because your father is perfect. God is perfect in all he does. He never has to start over. He simply cannot make something that is faulty. So what's going on here, Pastor? What's going on here is verse 8. For he finds fault with them. Who's the them? The people. The fault isn't isn't what God made. It's, it's in the people. You see, the gold covenant was perfect, but the people who lived under it were not. The old covenant's weakness lies with us. I don't know if you read H.G. Wells' novel. They also made a, a movie of it, The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's a story of a, of a tropical island that's under the control of this brilliant scientist, Dr. Moreau. And what he has done on that island is he has combined animals and humans together. All right? And so you have around the island, you know, pigs and wolves and, and things like that with human appearance and, and human personalities and human abilities. And, and the doctor has has made it so that these, this hybrid animal-human stays under control by chanting laws throughout the day. So these, these grotesque animals will say things like, from time to time, not go on all fours, that is the law. We are not men. Are we not men? Or things like, not to claw the bark of trees, that is the law. Are we not men? Or to chase other men, not to chase other men. That is the law. Are we not men? So chanting this law over and over again curbs their animal instincts. But what's very interesting is that at night, when they stop chanting that law, they kind of revert back into their animal instincts. It's very interesting that the law there is, is used to curb their animal instincts during the day, but at night their, their old nature takes over. H.G. Wells wrote at the end, the law battled in their minds with the deep-seated, ever-rebellious cravings of their animal natures. 
this law they were ever repeating, they were also ever breaking. In other words, the law was used there to tamp down their inner animal instincts. But it still crept out. It could not change their insides. Their inborn nature came out through the cracks. And that's exactly what happened with the Old Covenant, with the law. It tamped down, but it could not change the animal instincts within us. It's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. The, the impotence lies in us, not in God's Mosaic law, but in us. Again, Romans 7, encourage you to read it. It goes on an extended explanation of this. And there, Paul writes, sin, seizing the opportunity produced in me by the law, caused me to sin. Our heart reacts to law negatively. Great example of this last weekend. So we went to the Mirrors play, and it was wonderful. And afterwards, you know, people are cleaning up, and I'm standing at the threshold of, of the theater, and, and Aaron is on the other side, and his kids are running around, and Aaron wants to keep his kids inside the theater. So we told Cole and Rain, we said, okay, the, the threshold here, you know that little hump there? I said, the threshold, you can't go over this threshold. Do you know what they did immediately? Right over the threshold. I mean, no sooner had the had they left our mouths that Cole's foot was over the rain right there. That's you and me. When we're told not to do something, that's what the law does. It, it incites, oh, I want it. Isn't that the Garden of Eden? You have everything. Not this. And you go for that. It's no different. It's no different at all. Our hearts need to be changed. And we need something new and better to do that. The old covenant couldn't do that. We need internal change, not external law. We need a new heart. And that is the first thing that is better about the new covenant. It is inward and not outward. It is about our heart and not our behavior. Look at verse 10 with me. In Jeremiah's prophecy, the first thing he declares about this new covenant is, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. God promises in the new covenant that he will give us new hearts, something the old covenant could not do and did not do. Jeremiah's prophecy was written just before the Babylonian exile. Judah was at the rock bottom of their faithfulness to God. Rock bottom. Right before God is about to send them away from his presence. Exiled. Actually putting geographical distance between he and his people, so to speak. Exiling them from a relationship with him. But he wanted to leave them with encouragement. Yeah, you're going away. But things are going to get better. He encouraged them through the prophet Jeremiah, letting them know that there's hope for their relationship with him. 
That the day was coming when a new covenant would be made that would be better because it's not external, it's internal. He'd deal with their hearts and not their behavior. See, the old covenant was an external covenant. I mean, think about even how it, it, it's, it's meted out in the Old Testament, right? It's written on stone tablets, right? What are we told in Deuteronomy 6? To, to tie them around your wrist is external. To put them on your doorpost, external. To, on your gates, external. External reminders. The Mosaic Law dealt with behavioral obedience. And... In Deuteronomy 28, it says, no obedience, no relationship, right? That's Deuteronomy 28. If you, then I. If you obey, then I will be your God. Right? First half of Deuteronomy 28. Second half of Deuteronomy 28 is, if you don't, then consequences. It was an if you, then I covenant. But there was no inward power to obey. You're on the island of Dr. Moreau. Living under those covenants was like being one of those animals, chanting law. If I chant the law, if I, if I just memorize the law, it will change my behavior. Right? And that, we have a hangover of that in modern evangelicalism too, don't we? If I just know it, it'll change me. And uh, if you've been a Christian any time at all, you know that that knowledge doesn't change you. There's no inward power to obey. No inward power to really do it. The new covenant would be better. It would be an I will, you shall covenant. Write that down. It will be an I will, you shall covenant. Because you see it all over the New Testament. And you see it, Right here in Jeremiah's prophecy, look with me at verses 10, 11, and 12. He says, I will put my law into their minds. I will. Underline that. Next line, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will. Verse 11, and then they shall. Right? Again in verse 11, for they shall know me. Verse 12, I will. Twice. I mean, that's the pattern of, of the New Testament epistles, right? Basically, the first half of the epistle you read is the I will. It's all about Christ, right? What Christ has done. This is what Christ has done for you. This is what Christ has done for you. The second half of the epistles is basically, you shall. Because of what Christ has done for you, this is how you're going to live. It's a I will, you shall relationship. In the new covenant, God will give his people the ability to obey by giving them a new heart. And we will, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are given, we are able to obey God. We're able to do that. He gives us a new heart. And the nuance here I want you to understand is he gives us a new desire. Do you realize that? Now, a lot of things, this might you know, conflict with, with your experience, and it did with Paul's experience. Read Romans 7. Why do I do what, what I do? But the truth is, if you're a spirit-filled Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, 
and you trust in him alone for your salvation, you're given the Holy Spirit, and your heart begins to change. You want to do those things that, that before you didn't. That's the testimony that you just gave, brother. That's authentic Christianity. And it happens progressive, and there's a war in us. Paul doesn't discount that. But your desires start to change. And that's what is being amazingly expressed here. And that's what Ezekiel prophesied about. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? Ezekiel answers it. That they may walk in my statutes and keep and obey my rules. That's the amazing truth being expressed here, brothers and sisters. Our old troublesome hearts will be exchanged for new ones. I don't know if the name Dr. Christian Brainerd Barnard means anything to you. Dr. Christian Barnard, Bueller, anybody? No? Yeah, exactly. That's sad that we know Bueller, but not Barnard. Name Christian Barnard should be known. He was the South African surgeon who was the first ever to replace a human heart. His second transplant was another doctor named Philip Blayberg. A few days after the surgery, Barnard asked Blayberg if he'd like to see his old heart. So in the days coming, they met in the, in the room and, and Barnard took out of a cabinet his old heart that was in a glass jar and handed it to him. He was the first person on earth ever to hold his own heart. That's pretty cool. Both men stood silently, they said. It was the first time that he had held his own heart. And after the silence, Blayberg said this. He looked at his heart and said, This is my old heart. This is it. This is the heart that caused me so much trouble. And he handed it back to Barnard and left. Brothers and sisters, when we're converted... An interior transformation happens. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul talks about it as, as we're being transformed ever increasingly, right, into the image of Christ. We're given the character of God in our own hearts. Think about that. We're given the character of God. John MacArthur says, under the old covenant, obedience was primarily out of fear of punishment. And in the new, it is out of an adoring love and worshiping of your God. A desire. An ever-increasing desire to obey God from the heart. That's what Romans 6.17 says. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient. Where? From the heart. As a believer, you'll struggle with this. And sometimes your old nature will indeed battle with the new. Your old heart will conflict with your new one. But there should be an ever-increasing desire to obey God. There should be. That's what a true believer looks like. 
not obeying out of fear or duty, although that happens sometimes, but actually delighting in the obedience to God. Delighting in submitting to God. Just like a church submits to the elders. It should be a delight. It should be a joy. That's what we're going to read in chapter 13 of Hebrews. Just like a wife should delight in submitting to her husband. That's what we're, we're learning about in Titus. We should delight in obeying God from the heart. Secondly, the new covenant is better because it provides forgiveness. So it's not only better because it's inward, but it's better because we're forgiven. Depending on how much time you've spent in the Old Testament, this might sound strange to you. The Old Testament sacrifices never forgave sin. (laughs) The Old Testament sacrifices never forgave sin. They only covered them up. If you read the Old Testament, that word atone for, atonement, atone, comes from the Hebrew root word kafar, which means covering. It's probably why Paul uses that in the book of Romans to describe it. So the thousands and thousands of animals that had to be sacrificed showed that the people recognized their sin, which is a good thing, showed how serious sin was, another good thing, But the sacrifices only covered up sin, never forgave sin. That's why in a couple weeks we're going to read in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 4, that those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Sacrifices acted much like a bandage does, right? When you get a serious wound, you put a bandage over it. And it kind of protects it and it covers it. You don't see it, but it never heals it. The Old Testament sacrifices never healed their sin, never offered forgiveness. Stuart Oliot says this, which I find is very insightful. Although the Old Testament people constantly offered bulls, goats, and pigeons, they never enjoyed any flooding sense of forgiveness, pardon, or peace with God. That's so foreign to us. As a, as a New Testament believer, if you have the Spirit in you, you should feel that flooding. You should feel peace with God. He goes on to says, all their ritual was only a shadowy picture of a better covenant to come. And that's what's so great about the new covenant. Our sins are forgiven. That's what he says here in verse 12. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. That's what we celebrate when we take the the communion cup of his wine, juice. That's what we're remembering, that we're forgiven. Jesus said, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, he said on that night, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying it right there. The cup he was cutting, a new covenant which promised forgiveness. Forgiveness through Jesus' perfectly lived life that was hard as we have, have, have mined that in Hebrews. It was hard for him because he was truly human to obey God, 
But he did it because he loved us. He sacrificed and came and lived a perfect life. And he had every right to go to heaven. He had every right, totally righteous, to just pick up and ascend into heaven. But he didn't do that because he loved us so much. He said, you know what? Even though I am perfect, I've earned heaven, I've earned a relationship with the Lord God, I'm going to go to the cross because I love Blake, I love Jill, I love Sarah. And I'm going to take the penalty for their sin. God will take his wrath out on me and not them. And I will die. I'll pay the penalty. And that's what he did. He died and he was buried. And on the third day he rose again, conquering sin and death. Proving what he said in John 11. Do you believe it? I am the resurrection and the life. If, if you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. Do you believe it? Brothers and sisters, do you believe it? Man, woman, if you are here and you don't know that, if, you, if this is the first time you've heard that, it's true. It's true. You will go from life to life, just like Pat did. Romans 3.25 says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in the forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That verse should explode for you right now after what I just said. The sins beforehand were covered, not paid for. That, I, that's what Paul is talking about there. He paid for all the covered sin and your sin and mine. The enormity of the forgiveness is amazing. Lastly, the new covenant is better because the old, because, uh, than the old that it provides a, a better intimacy. Forgiveness leads to better intimacy. If you've been married at, for any length of time, you know this is true. When you go to your wife and you say, I am, I am truly sorry. That clears the road for intimacy. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. He says there, I'll put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, I know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Again, we see this external, internal difference. The new heart and the complete forgiveness leads to greater intimacy with God. Some of you might know the name George Mallory. He's the famous British explorer who, who tried to ascend to the top of Mount Everest in the 20s. Mallory and his climbing partner actually disappeared on when they were trying to make the summit ascent and were never heard from again. Before his disappearance, Mallory is quoted the uh, saying the, the famous thing of why climb a mountain. And now we, we know it's George Mallory because it's there. 
Although George Mallory became famous for his achievements, his son John had a different perspective. Proud of his father, but sad too. John wrote this, I would so much rather have known my father than to have grown up with a shadow of a legend. That's kind of what the Old Testament offered the people. A shadow of a legend. They, they, they knew what, he, they, what God did for them. It's a shadow of a relationship. Yes, a relationship, but a distant one. Like John knowing his father. Knowing about his father, but not knowing his father. The Old Testament is filled with God calling his, Israel his people. And that's, that's a wonderful moving closer then. But it was not intimate. They knew about God. They were taught who he was. They remember all he did for them, but there was no intimacy with God. No touch. That's what makes the new covenant so much better. While the old covenant is an entrance into a nation, the new covenant is an entrance into what? A family. There's a difference there between taking your oath to become a, a, a citizen and, and, as Sarah and Peter are about to do, enter into a family. There's an intimacy there. C.S. Lewis wrote, The Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Galatians 4, 4 through 7, which reads, When the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive full rights as sons. And because you are sons, God sent his spirit of sonship into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, you're an heir. It's a beautiful thing to become a son or daughter of the Most High King. You enter into a relationship. We're no longer God and his people. We are God We are father and son, or father and daughter. An intimate relationship where we call God by that intimate name, Abba. It's really untranslatable. The best we can do, the best we can do. And it sounds irreverent, but it's not, is to call him dad. It's the best we can do. It's the intimacy. Yes, there is reverence. But yes, there's real father, daughter, son intimacy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Pray that we will understand the, what we have been given in the new covenant. That you will help us, Lord, to draw close to you and be willing to, and to appreciate what you have given us in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.